Thank you very much, Elena, for this very generous introduction. I will now share the screen with PowerPoint. I hope everybody can see it. So the distinction of kind between knowledge and belief. Slide is here. So if I had to summarize in a few words uh, this paper, I would uh, use uh, two complementary slogans, uh, knowledge first, uh, but give uh, belief uh, its view. As uh, um, probably all of you will know, uh, over the past century or so, epistemological debates have uh, focused on the conception of knowledge as a kind of belief uh, which meet a certain criteria. As you will know, this conception has run into many problems, many charges of circularity, of many counterexamples, and so on. So I would say in the past two decades, at least, maybe a bit more, the calls for alternative accounts have grown louder. And amongst these alternative accounts, the so-called knowledge first epistemology by Timothy Williamson uh, is uh, a leading uh, contender. As uh, we, many of you will know, Williamson proposes uh, to invert uh, what was regarded as uh, the uh, standard uh, relationship between knowledge and belief. So the idea uh, is that uh, contrary to these uh, so-called standard analysis, uh, there is a priority of knowledge uh, over belief. And uh, I think uh, uh, rightly so. So instead of conceiving uh, um, knowledge as uh, analyzable into belief and other conditions, uh, the idea is that one uh, knowledge should go first uh, as uh, the most general uh, truth entailing of factive mental state. So what about belief? Uh, the idea is that belief uh, is... Uh, entailed by knowledge, but this entailment is not an analysis, but belief can be characterized in terms of knowledge. So Williamson writes, knowledge is in that sense the best kind of believing. Mere believing is a kind of botched knowing, unquote. Now, what I propose to do is to further this revolt against the post gettier epistemology, but in a way which I regard as more radical than Williamson. And I do so, first of all, by challenging the crude history of epistemology, which have been saying for many, many decades that the traditional or standard account of knowledge was justified to belief. Um, if one turns to the history of uh, philosophy, one uh, uh, would be hard pressed to find uh, any past author who really um, address, really approach uh, knowledge in these terms. Instead, what we find in what I regard uh, uh, at the very least as a prominent, uh, a prominent uh, historical strand, we find that instead of arguing uh, that knowledge should be analyzed in terms of belief or belief characterized in terms of knowledge. We find in many past authors the idea that knowledge and belief are two 
irreducibly different the mental states or cognitive modes. And uh, they regarded these two cognitive uh, modes as distinct in kind, in the stronger sense that knowing is not a kind of believing, not even the best kind, but a mental state radically different from belief. Now, the view that knowledge and belief are distinct in kind in this strong sense is routinely dismissed in contemporary literature as so obviously implausible as to deserve little or no discussion. Now, my proposal breaks with this trend, and I will argue that this is in fact a view which is well attested and even prominent in the history of philosophy, and which in my view should be recovered. Now, I will argue that according to a persistent traditional strand, there are two fundamentally distinct and mutually exclusive modes of cognition, which can be roughly identified by a contrast between seeing and not seeing, which track the contrast between knowledge and some, some cognate mode, cognitive modes and belief and some cognate cognitive modes. Um, now, I find uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, especially clear on this point, on this uh, contrast uh, between uh, seeing and not seeing, uh, knowing and believing. And you have this, uh, this uh, longer quotation on your slide. I am not going to be able to read all uh, the quotations on the slides, but they are in the written, uh, um, written version of the paper. Uh, so please uh, do refer to this quotation, if you like, in the discussion period. So obviously, um, Thomas Aquinas uh, and other people in this tradition, uh, especially the medieval thinkers, uh, when uh, they um, really were driving this uh, distinction between known, knowing and believing, seeing and not seeing, uh, did not want to undermine belief. Uh, for them, belief could be true, and uh, very strongly justified, and still uh, would not count as knowledge, uh, but as a different uh, cognitive mode. So they would have been uh, very well aware that uh, justified true belief is not sufficient for knowledge, uh, but not because something else, uh, the famous plus, uh, needs to be added, but because uh, we are uh, really dealing with different mental states. And so drawing uh, inspiration, sorry, this is not, uh, yeah, drawing inspiration from uh, this uh, um, historical tradition, I propose an account of cognition according to which knowledge is not only conceptually and ontologically prior to belief, it is also and crucially not a kind of belief. In turn, I argue believing is not some sort of botched knowing but a mental state fundamentally different from knowing with its own distinctive and complementary role in our cognitive life. So according to my account, contrary to the claim that belief aims at knowledge, which 
many of you will know has been uh, very strongly argued for in recent decades. According to my account, uh, belief, the, the specific contribution of belief to our cognition is that, at, is that of aiming at truth where and when knowledge is out of our cognitive reach, either for subjective or for objective reasons. So according to my account, belief does not aim at knowledge, because knowledge is out of reach, but aims at truth, as the tradition says. Now, before I try to make my case, a, a clarification is in order. This discussion is not about which words we use. It's not about what is called the word. I work from the, the original tests. I am very well aware that there is no clean translation from one language to the other, from one historical period to the other, even from one author in the same language, the same period to the other. This is about the identification of the main cognitive modes themselves, whatever they are called, and how they are distinct from one another. So the claim is that across time, across languages, across historical periods, there are certain fundamental distinctions between our modes of cognition, which keep reappearing. And it seems to me that uh, if this is the case, as I am hoping to make, I am hoping to make this case, it seems to me that there is a good, a good chance uh, that we are tracking uh, something which is uh, phenomenologically manifest before further metaphysical or uh, ontological or epistemological claims uh, which are typical of uh, say, empiricism against rationalism or idealism against, uh, um, against uh, realism. So it seems to me that we are tracking something uh, which is, uh, if we are tracking something which is uh, um, reappearing across these different traditions, uh, it seems to me that we are tracking something which is in itself uh, manifest. So let's... Uh, try to make my case, and I come here to the uh, first uh, part of my paper. There will be three main parts. This is the first one. I will say really only a few words about the distinction of kind in ancient, medieval, and early modern philosophy. I will then, in the second part, uh, um, focus on Hume and what happened there, according to my reading. In the third part, I will focus on the distinction of kind of what happened to it after Hume, and I will then come to my conclusion. So to the first main part of my talk, the distinction in ancient medieval and early modern thought. Um, it seems to me that this distinction is already very apparent in uh, starting from Parmenides and becomes a, a really central in Plato, and especially in Plato in certain central chapters, central books of Republics. It seems to me that in Plato, knowledge episteme is the apprehension of what is, and that doxa is something different, is a judgment about appearances. 
Of course, uh, Gettier claimed in a footnote of his brief paper that uh, an account of knowledge of knowledge as justified through belief uh, is to be found in the Theatetus uh, and the Meno. I disagree, I think that is not the case. I don't have the time uh, now to make the case, but we can come back to that in our discussion, uh, if you like. Now, if we look at Aristotle, uh, we find also there, it seems to me, a very clear distinction between nos episteme on the one hand uh, and uh, doxa on the other hand. And, uh, and what I found uh, in uh, Aristotle, which is particularly interesting, uh, and I would like to draw your attention to that, is that uh, Aristotle is very good in, uh, um, in, uh, in drawing attention uh, to the sui generis uh, unity, which you find already in sense perception uh, between uh, perceiver and perceived in the act of perception. This is a sui generis unity in which there is no gap between the perceiver and perceived, despite the fact that there remain the ontological distinction between perceiver and perceived. Aristotle says that their being is different. Now, um, if we turn to very briefly to um, Epicurus and especially to Stoicism, it seems to me that there the distinction of kind between knowledge and belief is even clearer. And in particular in Stoicism, there is an epistemological notion which is central to their account, which is the notion of catalepsis. That is the notion of grasp. And in this quotation you have on the slide from Sestus Empiricus, I think there is a wonderful a wonderful summary of the relationship between these three cognitive modes, episteme, catalepsis, and doxa. And what unified episteme and catalepsis is the idea of this grasp, that in knowledge is more secure. There is this metaphor of grasping, and then in episteme, the other hand goes to secure, to secure the grasp. And uh, doxa is something uh, different, what, uh, in, in which there is uh, not this uh, grasp of what is. What unifies all three is uh, assent, because assent is given in all three cases, but on different grounds. Um, if we turn very briefly to Aquinas, uh, this is for me a, a very important quotation, which give, uh, it provides uh, um, an important inspiration for my uh, project. And what you find in, account, in uh, Aquinas is uh, this idea that there is uh, a general uh, mental act, which is uh, the general mental act of thinking with assent, cum ascensione cogitare, of which there are different species. On the one hand, there is uh, intellectus and uh, Scientia. On the other hand, there are other cognitive modes, credere, um, opinari, uh, there is a doubting, uh, suspecting, uh, to have faith. What is different uh, between uh, these two families of cognitive modes is that on the one hand, uh, assent is moved directly by the object of cognition which is uh, present to the mind and by itself 
moves ascent, compels ascent. And this is uh, intellectus and uh, scientia. On the other hand, uh, there is uh, no such direct, there is no such presence of the object of cognition to the mind. And the scent is moved by reasons, by justification, by reason external, as it were, to the object of cognition itself. And these reasons will have different degrees of strength, from weak to very strong. Now, um, now let me get quickly back to the main slide. Now, if we turn uh, to early modern philosophy and uh, we look at uh, evidence and knowledge, belief in early modern philosophy, uh, once again, uh, uh, I have found in uh, surveys and textbooks uh, that early modern philosophy is uh, characterized by the standard analysis justified to believe. The problem with this account is that it is at odds with what the main early modern authors say about knowledge, about belief, and how they are distinct. So you find Descartes, Spinoza, Malbranche, Leibniz, and especially Locke, who do not speak of knowledge as a belief which can be turned into knowledge by the addition of conditions. And uh, it seems to me that, in fact, Locke, the very architect of uh, um, Anglo Anglophone epistemology, is uh, particularly clear in keeping distinct uh, knowledge and belief or, or judgment, as he calls it. And again, we can uh, go back and uh, discuss uh, this uh, during uh, the um, question and answers period. Now, let me come to, my second, to the second part of this talk. It may be tempting to wave through what I have said so far and dismiss it effectively as an historian of philosophy, pedantry. Gettier obviously was not doing history of philosophy when he said that in Plato there was the justified to belief analysis nor are uh, contemporary epistemologists doing history of philosophy. There is no need uh, to get a set, uh, to write longer refutations. Uh, let it be granted uh, that an innocent uh, historical mistake was, make, was made, uh, and then uh, equally innocently, this uh, historical mistake uh, mushroomed uh, into the orthodox doctrine for uh, generations and generations of epistemology students. The next uh, uh, editions of uh, epistemology textbook will leave out uh, Plato altogether and all uh, will be well. Now, in what follows, I will try to argue that uh, if there are uh, any innocent mistakes in history, this one uh, is not uh, one of them. I contend that belief has become a catch-all category for all sorts of mental states due to, the, to historical and philosophical reasons linked to the skeptical attack against the conception of cognition according to which there is a primitive contact between mind and reality. More specifically, I claim that they inflated the use of belief in 20th century philosophy as its roots in certain skeptical aspects of Hume's 
philosophy, which had a huge, had a huge impact, especially on analytical Anglo-American epistemology. Once skepticism had declared that all our putative knowledge is a bottom belief, that is a mental state according to which traditionally there is no contact between mind and reality, then the scene was set for making beliefs, if you reduce all cognition ultimately to belief, making beliefs the umbrella for all mental states. And then it might seem that in order to push back on the skeptical attack, the best thing to do is to redefine a knowledge as a kind of belief which meets certain necessary and sufficient conditions. And it seems to me that this is exactly what JTTB plus theories of knowledge have done. And now many people, not only myself, um, think that this is a philosophical design. Now, before I come to Yuma and I try to explain why I think so, um, I would like uh, to um, note a few things. So the first one is that uh, it is interesting that uh, in the last um, past few years, uh, it has become customary in uh, Anglophone epistemology to distinguish between a belief and credence. And now belief is reserved to an on and off state. It is also called a categorical belief, a full-on belief, a binary belief, whereas credence is reserved for a mental state which has degrees, so scalar belief. Now, the thing is that credence is nothing else than the Latin version of the Germanic belief. And their synonymity is shown, for instance, by their common etymological origins in the ideas of trust, holding dear, giving credit. And in fact, in Romance languages like Italian or French, you cannot really replicate in a straightforward way is an artificially distinct use of credence and belief because the Romance languages, they don't have the Germanic root to the same, to the same word. So this artificially distinct use seems to me is nevertheless signaling something very important. And that is that there is a growing awareness that aspects of cognition, modes of cognition, which in post-Human epistemology had been subsumed under the category of belief, needs instead to be distinguished. Um, in some, as uh, um, William Alston has uh, written in one of his papers, over the past century or so, Anglophone epistemology has been characterized by an inflated use of belief. The term belief has been allowed to spread over all positive propositional attitudes. It seems to me that most importantly, in post-human epistemology, the term belief has been employed in an equivocal way to indicate different things. On the one hand, it has been used to indicate a general mental state or a 
or mental act of acknowledgement and affirmation, which applies across the board, whether this acknowledgement or affirmation is compelled by the presence of the object, or whether this acknowledgement or affirmation is on the basis of external reasons with different degrees of force. And the same term has been applied equivocally also for a, mental, a more specific mental state, in which uh, there is no such contact with uh, the object of cognition, and uh, this uh, acknowledgement or affirmation, uh, this assent, uh, is given uh, on the basis of reasons, justification, uh, and so on. Now, of course, as I said uh, before in my introduction, uh, what is important is not uh, what we call what. Uh, what if one wishes, uh, to keep using in an equivocal way belief, that's of course fine. But I don't see what is the advantage in a philosophical contest when we are trying to be precise to continue with this equivocal, inflated use when there is a perfectly good way to mark the distinction which return again and again throughout the history of philosophy in all different languages. And more importantly than even that, when this equivocal use of belief is not philosophically neutral. What is at stake, I think, is whether there are or there are not cognitive mental states which are different in kind, whatever they are called. That is, whether there is a mental state in which there is a cognitive contact with reality and a mental state in which there is no such cognitive contact. If all our cognition is reduced to the latter, which is, I claim, what traditionally was called belief, doxa, and so on, then there is no way, in my view, to bridge the gap and skepticism wins the day. Now, skepticism is, of course, as old as philosophy, but I would like to um, focus now on something distinctive which happened in the early modern period. And uh, um, in particular, I would like to focus on some aspects of Hume's philosophy, which I think. Uh, underpins what comes later in JTB plus theories of knowledge. Now, Hume, I think, was perfectly aware that there is a distinction of kind between knowledge and belief. And Hume doesn't say a lot about what he regards as, strictly speaking, knowledge, but what he says, it seems to me very clear. Knowledge, for him, has to do with relations of ideas. That is, with analytical a priori propositions. These propositions are either intuitively or demonstratively certain, and it seems to me that Hume here is really tracking the traditional uh, intellectus and scientia, um, knows and episteme. These propositions are uh, uh, discoverable by the mere operation of thought without dependence 
of what is in anywhere existence in the universe. Geometry, algebra, and arithmetic are the sciences which have this kind of proposition as their object, and they are absolutely certain. However, the trouble is, Hume goes on to say, that also in these matters, we are so prone to error that all our knowledge degenerates into probability. And Hume goes on to say about knowledge and probability. Knowledge and probability are such contrary, of such contrary and disagreeing natures that they cannot well run insensibly into each other. And that's because they will not divide, but must be entirely present or entirely absent. That is, Hume is perfectly aware that probability does not turn into knowledge, no matter how high the probability. Pace, much uh, present-day formal epistemology. Knowledge and probability are two cognitive modes with different natures. Although there is, in principle, therefore, a kind of cognition which counts strictly as knowledge, in fact, due to the fallibility of our reason, we achieve only probability. The weak, this weaker kind of cognition has, Jung says, the same nature of the kind of cognition that, I quote, we employ in a common life, or in all matters of fact, that is, belief. Matters of fact, as opposed to relations of ideas, including the existence of external bodies or the existence of causal relations, that is, of necessary connections between cause and effect, are indeed objects not of knowledge but of belief. This is a natural belief, an incorrigible belief. We cannot but believe certain things about the existence, the existence of bodies, the causal connections, and this uh, natural belief uh, is uh, just a result of our natural constitution uh, and uh, is, uh, um, it serves as well uh, as instinct uh, serves uh, other animals and so on. But uh, the point is that uh, to ask whether there really are external bodies or there really are necessary connections and so on, uh, Hume is quite clear that it doesn't even make sense to ask these questions. So going forward, as I said before, when all cognition has been reduced, in fact, to belief and probability, it might seem that the best way to resist skepticism is to redefine what counts as knowledge in terms of a special kind of belief which meets certain criteria. So, while, and it seems to me that is what uh, JTB plus uh, um, theories of knowledge have done. Why it seems to me clear that uh, the intention is uh, to keep uh, skepticism at bay, the recurrent failure of doing so of this uh, type of theories uh, seems to me it is ultimately rooted uh, in the fact that they are the offspring of a skeptical outlook. The crux of the matter is not what we are happy to call or have become accustomed to call knowledge. Um, it is not whether we are now 
user to call it a certain kind of belief knowledge and no matter how probable or entitled entitled or, or uh, um, strongly justified and so on the issue is whether our cognition puts us in touch with what is as opposed to only what appears to be i am now um progressing my sorry my slides to the third part the distinction of kind after Hume, and I will uh, start by saying uh, a few things uh, about Kant. Uh, what I will claim in this uh, session uh, is uh, that, uh, like Plato, Kant uh, conceives knowledge uh, as and belief uh, as uh, two distinct uh, cognitive modes which do not turn into one another and which in important cases have different objects. Now, there is a big, a big uh, difference, however, between Plato and Kant, because uh, um, Kant inverts what uh, can be known and what can be believed. According to uh, Kant, the object of knowledge are phenomena, uh, that is, uh, for Kant, as a we know knowledge is only of what falls within the boundaries of our possible experience, bounded by space and time, and by the, uh, that is the a priori form of our sensitivity. That is, uh, knowledge is only of the sensible. And uh, uh, for, uh, for uh, the intelligible world, for uh, um, things in themselves, uh, you need uh, to turn uh, to a different cognitive mode, which is the Kantian Glaube. Now, I would like to note before going to Fuvar Altena and the rest of it, is that interestingly, it seems to me that phenomena are for Kant candidates for knowledge because to some extent they are mental constructions. And therefore, there is no ontological and epistemological gap between the mind and uh, these uh, objects of possible experience. So it seems to me that Kant agrees that you can have knowledge only when there is no ontological gap, either or epistemological gap. And uh, in fact, there is no knowledge of the intelligible world, of things in themselves. Now, um, in the canon of pure reason, um, Kant has this notion of Fürwaralten, which is uh, translated by Andrew Cignel in a wonderful paper on uh, Kant and belief, as assent or holding for true. And uh, we assent or hold for true on the basis uh, of uh, two distinct kinds of grounds, objective grounds or subjective grounds. And then there are different species of Fuhrwahr-Alten, depending on the different mix between objective grounds and the subjective grounds. And the Kant lists persuasion, opinion, belief, conviction, and knowledge. Now, as I interpret it, Fuhrwahr-Alten is the generic cognitive 
mental act of assenting or thinking with assent, or what was classically um, known as a judgment. And of these uh, generic uh, um, thinking with assent, there are various kinds. What I would like uh, to stress is uh, that it seems to me that knowledge might be a species of conviction for Kant, but can certainly not be a species of Glaube, Meinung, or Überredung. And why not? Because what is characteristic of conviction and knowledge is that assent is given on objectively sufficient grounds. And what is characteristic of Glaube, Meinung, and Überredung is that assent is given in, uh, on uh, subjectively sufficient grounds. So it seems to me that uh, knowledge could not be a species of these uh, cognitive modes. Now, before going, uh, um, progressing to what I'm sure would be a fairly obvious uh, objections to what I am presenting, uh, I would like to note that for Kant, belief and opinion uh, do not uh, imply a cognitive mistake, the way in which persuasion implies a cognitive mistake. Because uh, persuasion mistakenly takes uh, subjectively sufficient grounds for objectively sufficient grounds. Whereas that does not happen uh, in belief and opinion, because the people who believe or opine no, are aware that they do so on subjectively and not objectively sufficient grounds. So, um, Glaube and Meinung uh, are imperfect modes of cognition, but they are not cognitive failures. And in fact, they have an important cognitive function which kicks in when knowledge, vision, is not available precisely because uh, there is uh, no, uh, no grasp uh, of, uh, the, of these uh, objective grounds. And we can discuss further if you like about this. Now, this uh, could uh, meet uh, with a fairly obvious objection, and that is that uh, the structure of Kant account uh, is actually the same uh, as uh, the JTB plus uh, analysis of knowledge, which in which a Fuhrwahr Alten holds the functional place of what in English is called belief. Now, to this objection, I have the following reply. If by belief is meant the mental act of judgment or the mental act by which something is acknowledged or affirmed, then the Kantian proposal does have the structure of a general mental act of affirming or acknowledging. However, if by belief is meant a cognitive mode in which there is an ontological or an epistemological gap between a cognizer and cognized, subject and object, there is no way that Kantian Wissen can, or Kantian Glaube can be turned into, um, sorry, Kantian Wissen can be Sorry, Kantian Glaube can be turned into that kind of cognitive mode. Now, as I said, 
before is not the word which counts. If one wants to call a Furwaralten or thinking with a center belief, one can, can do so. That's not a problem. What is at stake is what cognitive mode are we trying to indicate with this term. And it seems to me that in this case, the mental act at stake with Furwaralten should not be conflated or confused with uh, what Hume calls belief. And uh, it seems to me that historically, that, that sense of belief uh, is what uh, underpins uh, the justified true belief uh, sort uh, of accounts of knowledge. Insofar as uh, this is the case, uh, and that uh, is that a human sense of belief, uh, which is uh, underpinning those theories, it seems to me that the Kantian proposal is in the letter and the spirit very different from a justified to believe plus account of knowledge. Now I come here for, um, to the last part of my, of the third part of my talk, and I would like here to um, devote a few words to two parallel movements, philosophical movements, which flourished in the late 19th, early 20th century. The first one is Oxford Realism. Um, as many of you will know, um, the main uh, proponent of that uh, was uh, Cook Wilson. Uh, although he didn't publish much uh, in his life, uh, we can uh, see his views uh, um, also in, his, uh, in what his pupil says, his former students. And it seems to me that in Oxford Realism, the distinction of kind between knowledge and belief could not be expressed in clearer terms. They preach the rights. Knowing is absolutely different from what is called indifferently believing or being convinced or being persuaded or having an opinion. Knowing and believing differ in kind as do desiring and feeling. Their difference in kind is not that of species and genus, like that of a red color and a color. To know is not to have a belief of a certain kind, differing from beliefs of other kinds, and no improvement in a belief and no increase in the feeling of conviction, which it implies, will convert it into knowledge. Now, in the background of this conception, there is the idea that knowledge, as Cook Wilson puts it, is a sui generis, that is, it is a non-derivative frame of mind. In Current terms, knowledge is a primitive, a primitive mental state, which as such, since it is a primitive mental state, it cannot be analyzed, it cannot be defined in terms of something which is more fundamental. From the early 20th century world, Cook Wilson started calling this primitive mental state apprehension. 
and uh, he says that uh, apprehension, uh, um, sorry, we cannot construct knowing the act of apprehending out of any element. So apprehension is a direct grasp of the ob object of, of cognition, a direct, a direct seeing what is. Um, there is a, another very famous uh, quotation from Austin, uh, this quotation about uh, the pig and the difference between uh, uh, looking for clues and uh, evidence um, that there is a pig and uh, actually being presented uh, with uh, the pig. This is uh, a, a very famous uh, uh, quotation. Now, I would like uh, rapidly to move and compare this uh, with uh, another um, philosophical movement uh, which flourished uh, in roughly the same uh, period uh, as Oxford realism in Catholic countries. Uh, and uh, this is uh, a, a, the neo-scholastic movement uh, which uh, recovers uh, certain uh, key aspects uh, of uh, 13th century theory of cognition and especially of uh, Aquinas' version of that theory of cognition. Now, according to the neo-scholastics, they would uh, typically, typically agree that I quote from one of the textbooks of the early 20th century, I quote, knowing cognition knowledge is sui generis and therefore it cannot strictly speaking, be defined or explained in terms of anything other than itself. Now, the level of institutionalization of these views is shown by the fact that they are reproduced in the Catholic Encyclopedia, which was written at the beginning of the 20th century. In the entry knowledge, we read, Knowledge, being a primitive fact of consciousness, cannot, strictly speaking, be defined. But the direct and spontaneous consciousness of knowing may be made clearer by pointing out its essential and distinctive characteristics. That is, I quote, knowledge is essentially the consciousness of an object. And uh, um, they also regard uh, the starting point of all knowledge, uh, what they call the apprehensio simplex, simple apprehension, which is precisely this idea of a grasp of what is presenting itself. So this goes back, if you like, to the stoic catalepsis, this idea of grasping what is presented. Belief, we read in the entry belief, is that state of the mind by which it assents to propositions not by reason of their intrinsic evidence. This state of mind is often used in an indiscriminate way for other mental states. In particular, it should be distinguished from the assent of knowledge. Okay, so I come now to my conclusion. Um, I have presented an interpretation according to which the main battle line in the history of epistemology is drawn 
between uh, the affirmation of a natural mental state in which there is a contact between mind and reality, whatever the ontological nature of this reality, if you are an idealism, we'll have a certain reality, if you are a realist, an empiricist, we'll have another ontological status. And so on the one hand, a natural mental state in which there is a contact between the mind and reality, reality and the rejection of such a natural mental state. For the former position, there is a mental state which is a different in kind from belief and which is constituted by the presence of the object of cognition to the cognitive subject with no gap between them. For the latter position, all our cognition is belief and the question becomes how and when belief is permissible. So, as you will have guessed, the bar for knowledge in this account is set very high, as in the best early modern tradition. There could be no successful cognition without a primitive contact between mind and reality, but what we know and can know is limited, because at its most fundamental, knowledge is akin to acquaintance, and in intellectual cognition involves understanding. Justified belief, on the other hand, is by far the most common mode of our successful cognition, with the enormous power of extending our cognitive grip beyond the little which, strictly speaking, can be known. Now, I expect that an immediate objection to this account will be, well, the bar for knowledge is set too high. A lot of what we normally take to be knowledge would not qualify. Now, I have three replies uh, very briefly to this objection and then uh, I am finished. The first reply is ad hominem. Those who think that knowledge is a kind of belief are, are in a position to complain that on this account too much of our cognition counts as belief. I recognize all the distinctions they have, that is the distinction between Gettyerized and non gettyerized cases of justified true belief, um, of the distinction between strongly justified true belief, belief which is reliable in tracking truth and all that. But what I argue is that there is a mental state which is ontologically distinct from any sort of belief, no matter how permissible, entitable. Um, uh, incorrigible, um, and so on, whereas for them, all our cognition is at bottom some sort of belief. The second reply, um, more positive reply, is that there is a social dimension to knowledge. This social dimension allows us to count as known by the community rather than by each individual in the community those aspects of what is with which some group and or individual in the community has or has had the kind of cognitive contact required for knowledge. Seems to me that 
Science is a prime example of this. There are things which are known, and rightly so, known in the strong sense of the term, by the scientific community collectively, but not distributively by each individual in that community. And it seems to me that mutando mutandis, a similar story can be told also for our day-to-day -day condition. Third and last, a, a crucial, a, a main aim of my proposal is to stress the crucial contribution to our cognition of a cognitive mode irreducibly other than knowledge, namely belief. Belief is not something substandard because belief has its own standard, namely justification, degrees of probability, level of support by reasons, and so on. It is a different indispensable and complementary way to engage cognitively with reality and or the world. In fact, it seems to me that uh, um, if we are aware that much of our cognition is in fact belief rather than knowledge, it becomes even more important that our beliefs meet certain criteria because only when they meet this criteria of justification or warrant and so on, this belief is, is rationally justified. Conversely, conversely, it seems to me that the inflated use of the notion of knowledge often goes hand in hand with fundamentalism and dogmatism. So, knowledge first, but give belief its due. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Rosa. Um, what a wonderful talk. We can show our appreciation. Uh, for those of you who haven't discovered this, there's a little button called Reactions at the bottom of your screen, and you should be able uh, to applaud by, um, by pressing it. Thank you. Um, so, let, let's please do that. Thank you, Rosa. Okay, so now um, we have come to the part of uh, the meeting where we have a little break. Uh, so you can go away, stretch your legs uh, for 10 minutes, get something to drink or eat. Um, and we'll resume, I make it 18.30ish now. Um, so we'll resume at 18.40. And